Hello there, welcome to Jubes and Curd, the podcast of my show on GB News. My name's Michelle Jubery, and you can catch me live every weekday evening from 6 till 7pm. But worry not, if you miss it, you can catch up here after every show. So let's do it. Welcome to Jubes and Curd. Keeping me company until 7 o'clock tonight. They didn't have to uh, have that loud shouting and bell ringing. They were in the other room, wasn't you, Ben Habib? Um, former Brexit Party MEP and the CEO of First Property Group and the anthropologist, Mary Ann Hotter. Yeah, you swerved that one. You didn't yeah. have that right in your ear as I did. I can still hear that bell ringing. And we both noticed that um, we know the name of your show. Good. So hopefully we're not fine. We get to stay. Good. Yes, you can stay. And if you uh, miss the end of Colin's show and you don't know what I'm talking about, that'll teach you a lesson. Tune in. Never switch GP News off and then you won't be sitting there thinking, what's she talking about? Because you'd know the answer. Anyway, you know uh, the drill on Jubes and Kerbai now, don't you? It's not just about us three here. It's about you at home as well. Get in touch with me tonight. Let me know what is on your mind. If you have just tuned in, you're wondering what we've got uh, coming up for you. I want to talk to you about Scotland. Uh, the SNP, good thing for Scotland, bad thing for Scotland. Are you in Scotland? I want your thoughts on that. Uh, also, we'll be talking to you about the channel. Touched on this briefly yesterday because the figures had passed uh, over 20,000. People have crossed. Now, potentially, conversations about Royal Navy. Uh, should they lead the way when it comes to patrolling the channel? I've got to say they've not done a great job of it so far, have they? Uh, but anyway, we'll be bringing that up towards the end of the programme. And when it comes to working... Are you incentivised to keep going um, or not? We'll look at that and more in just a few minutes. But uh, should we get into our top story? Did I tell you, by the way, how to get in touch with me or was I waffling on? Uh, if you're sitting there thinking, I want to talk to you, Michelle, but you didn't tell me, I'll remind you just in case I didn't. GBviews at gbnews.uk is the email. You can tweet me at michellejubes or at gbnews. Uh, so, top story today then. The Tory leadership hustings uh, has moved to Scotland. In Perth they are this evening. Liz Truss, uh, Rishi Sunak have promised greater scrutiny of the Scottish government uh, once they move into number 10. So it's got me pondering tonight. Um, do you think either of them would make a difference in Scotland and the SNP generally? Have there been a success or a failure in Scotland? Mariana Hotter, I'll start with you. Your thoughts? Well, I think most pertinent at the moment is to say what's the situation with the Scottish Conservatives and the answer is parlous. I mean, in the, the May local elections, um, the SNP gained 22 seats. So they're up to 453 councillors. Conservatives lost 63 councillors. Lib Dems, Scottish Greens, um, the Le and Labour, they all gained where the Conservatives lost. So the kind of question is, obviously, Rishi Sunak or Liz Truss is going to become the Prime Minister. But at this point, they're lobbying for support from, from Scottish Conservatives, particularly members of the Scottish Conservative Party. So it's kind of an interesting combination. I think it's very telling, though, that they've both come out with quite strong statements today talking about how important it is to preserve the union, that they are is clearly um, looking forwards in their calendar of what fires they're going to have to fight a little bit <laughs> further down the road they're thinking the state of the union is pretty shambolic. The SNP are just waiting to leverage that enormous grassroots support they've got throughout Scotland at all different socioeconomic levels, all different classes. At a certain, <laughs> certain point, you know, the question, has the SNP failed Scotland? Well, their stated aim is to be a national party that campaigns for um, 
independence. And they're, I mean, they're not failing on that front by any stretch of the imagination. Um, right, Ben, just before I come to you, I'll share some of the thoughts of my viewers. Uh, you're not sitting on the fence uh, tonight, got to be honest. Joe says, Michelle, <coughs> the SNP is the worst party in British history, Phil says. The SNP are the Scottish equivalent of the Northern Ireland's Sinn Féin. They're there to disrupt rather than govern. Uh, John says, Westminster needs to dissolve Holyrood and carry out an audit on all the money wasted by the SNP. Can we, can I, can I ask the viewers who are writing in or, or listeners who are writing in to say whether they're in Scotland or not? Because yes, there you go. there's a risk, Scotland? isn't there, that people who live in Somerset have a lot to say about this, mm. but the people in Scotland are maybe sitting there grumbling into their Ooh. cup of tea. Well, I, I will read you someone uh, that does live in Scotland. In fact, there's a couple, actually, that I can't necessarily read out uh, <laughs> that do live in Scotland, I have to say. There's a strength of feeling from a few of you in Scotland tonight that, uh, I'll put it mildly, that you're not keen on the SNP. Um, uh, Hoy, you say, oh, Steve, you say, I live in Scotland, and I think it's about time somebody looked into the SNP. Um, you make some allegations there that I won't necessarily read out, but you're suggesting that they do not have the support in your mind that you think that they do. Uh, another John says, we in Scotland here have to live with these SNP reptiles. He's put it in capitals as well. There's a lot of strong feelings, but to Marianne's point, if you're in Scotland, tell me that but and also, let me know your thoughts. I mean, people voting at the ballot box in May, that wasn't that long ago. You know, are the representative sample, that was an invitation to everyone over 18 to vote and, and they voted for the SNP. Who's this? A Isab lot of them. Isabel, uh, Michelle, the SNP is a massive failure to us Scots. They have let us down on education, the NHS and crime. They are an absolute sham, she says. Yes, I am Scottish and yes, I live in Scotland. Ben Habib. Well, I mean, I, I, I hold the SNP in very low regard. They've used devolution as I suppose you might expect them to, which is a soapbox for grievance politics. They can get up on that soapbox, they can complain about Westminster, they can pass policies for which they will not be held to account. And if or everything goes pear-shaped, they'll come begging bowl in hand, which Nicola Sturgeon did recently, to Westminster asking for more money. I mean, the real problem here isn't SNP. The real problem here is devolution, which was a half-baked um, Tony Blair creation, which really we should roll back completely. And. Um, I agree entirely with one of your viewers who said that the Holyrood should be, should be abolished. I'd abolish the Welsh Assembly and I'd abolish Stormont. We are one United Kingdom and there is one parliament that should govern the United Kingdom. And actually, I don't care whether the views come from Scottish nas uh, British nationals based in Scotland or British nationals based in Cornwall. You know, this is a constitutional uh, debate that we're having, which involves all of the United Kingdom and we're all British citizens. So. I mean, I, I think devolution's been a disaster. I think it allows grievance politics. It's bound to propose, pr promote separatists. But there is one interesting point I'd just like to make before I stop, and that is that the Conservative Party actually has an unhealthy relationship with the SNP. Because for as long as the SNP can hold its ground in Scotland, it's very, very hard for the Labour Party to get an outright majority. So even though, the SNP might um, tilt against the union and, and therefore offend the Conservative and Unionist Party. It's actually rather helpful for the Tories that the SNP exists. 
Um, I said that was my final point. There's one other point no, I'd like to right. make, which is that on the, on the union of the United Kingdom, actually the real threat right now is not from Scotland. The real threat is from Northern Ireland, which, as we know, has been substantially left behind in the European Union. Stormont isn't functioning. We have an elected party in Stormont that is openly hostile to the United Kingdom, won't take its seats up in Westminster. At least the SNP does take its seats up in, West, in Westminster and engage at a, a, at a genuine United Kingdom level. And we've got a first minister in waiting in, in Northern Ireland, who actually as recently as a couple of weeks ago was uh, bullying up IRA terrorists. You know, that is the state of devolution. And something fundamentally has to change in the way we structured the country. And I hold, and I go back to where this started, Tony Blair responsible. See, that is quite uh, radical there. What do you think to that at home? Uh, do you agree with Ben? Do you think, essentially, scrap all the uh, parliamentary devolution and just have Westminster? I mean, I've got to be honest, though. Some people at home will be yelling at the screen in that Westminster has not really done a great job of things as it currently stands. The country is in a bit of a mess. Um, Marianne, you want to come in? I can well, hear the intake of breath. <laughs> I think if um, it's, it is a radical suggestion, I'm kind of intrigued to kind of play the thought experiment through. Yeah. I think if we're going to, you know, demolish Holyrood and Stormont and, and the Senate, why not demolish the House of Commons as well and just go for a whole new, you know, kind of Terra Nova place? I don't know, pick Birmingham. Let's have it all Coventry or Derby Hull. or somewhere. Hull. Hull, there you go, Hull. But somewhere we'd never expect to have the well, I, I'm power. Well, I'm just to the geographic location of Parliament. Let's start afresh. But, you know, the, for I... me, there's only one United Kingdom. We are one country. We've got to stop thinking of ourselves as four countries. We are one United Kingdom. My I... love of Northern Ireland is as big as my love for Scotland, Wales and England. And we've got to stop looking at the United Kingdom through this narrow prism. I don't care whether Parliament's in Hull, London... Edinburgh. Move it to Edinburgh for all I care. But... I, I don't want the United Kingdom to break up either. But I think to say that you don't care is too close to attempting to just don't ignore about... history. I... You don't care about the differences. No, no, I said I... I said I love each part of the United Kingdom equally. I don't care where Parliament is based. That's what I mean. Yeah. I think you have to care because I think it speaks to centuries of trauma, of dismissal of unfairness that people are living through now as well. I mean, that's <coughs> excuse me, that said, if you go to um, some communities in the Highlands and Islands of Scotland, they will feel as unrepresented by the people in, you know, the, the kind of um, intellectual elites of, of Holyrood in Edinburgh as they do by the ministers of parliament um, in, in Westminster sitting in a bar in Knightsbridge. So I think it's funny, isn't it? Because the British Isles, is, we're quite small, but we are very, very geographically diverse. We have deeply held cultural values and, and some aspects where local community or regional identity is hugely important to people. And we have to acknowledge that in our politics. We have to acknowledge that in the way that we... We that, are governed but, and govern ourselves. But that is automatically acknowledged by representation in Westminster, which is done on a constituency basis based on around 70,000 constituents per constituency. I mean, that roughly is how it's done. So, I mean, all, all you create when you, when you give Scotland its own 
uh, Assembly and Wales and Northern, and Northern Ireland in particular, where you've got this rabid, hostile force, um, uh, you know, inhabiting a significant part of the, uh, of the Assembly. All you give them is a soapbox. It's to naive. shout at Westminster. It's naive, though, to think that, that Westminster runs in such a way that everybody has equal say. Because, you know, but politicians you have, you and, a, and a cabinet... the majority is, get, the, get the majority say. That's how democracy works. But that's not really how it works either, because there's a set of priorities that are, are you know... I mean, we're kind of talking about Rishi Sunak and, and Liz Truss coming to Scotland and announcing what their priorities are going to be. They might not be the priorities of the people they're addressing. They're certainly not the priorities of, of the people who aren't going to be voting but in the But they will be the majority... Uh, not necessarily. I mean, Ben, you've been around long enough to know that it's not always the majority. No, but then it's they get sometimes vested interests. They get it's sometimes out. what plays Oh, well, I mean, if we're the, going on to the vested interests of the Tory the, party, we could be here of, for hours. Um, you know, to the crowd. Yeah. It's not actually but, what's important, always. I've got to say, well, there is quite a lot of uh, love for your um, criticism of devolution. That's coming through at the moment. Quite a lot of people are agreeing with what you're saying in terms of, uh, who's this guy? You email so quickly, you guys. I spot one and then it flies down the list. Uh, Alan says, Ben is absolutely spot on. Uh, abolish Holyrood. This is another Tony Blair disaster, he says. Uh, can I put a request out? If there's anyone uh, that loves the SNP, uh, can you get in touch with me, please, and tell me? Because um, so far, I don't think I've missed anything, but there's not a lot of love coming through for the SNP. Uh, Wiley, you've just emailed in. You're the last email that's just come in saying, the SNP are a bunch of clowners that have ruined everything that was once good in Scotland. <laughs> Education, NHS, you name it, they ruined <coughs> it. Um, so many people... I think a lot of their more socialist policies are very progressive. And I think, to some extent, across the United Kingdom, it's incredibly valuable to see people trialling and actually putting into the real-world messy realities policies that people elsewhere in the United Kingdom go, oh, if only we could do that. Things about sort of... Um, a, a more progressive way of rehabilitating um, people who are locked into a cycle in the criminal justice system, ways of addressing attainment um, gaps in education between people who are experiencing, children who are experiencing lives grown up in deprivation compared to kids who have every privilege. But are you saying devolution assists the promotion of better policies? I, I, I'm saying it enables more flexibility and agility in some aspects because you can go, OK, we're going to enact this in Scotland. We're going to go for it. In the way that um, a sort of more federal um, government structure enables local communities to respond to local needs. That was the basis of devolution, wasn't it? Rather than this kind of very top-down, top um, sort of process-heavy edict from literally on far because it's coming from but it's Westminster. Not an edict, it's a democratically elected parliament. In, no, because policies are enacted. Uh, policies <laughs> are enacted. Ben, the one thing I absolutely agree with you is that Northern Ireland, Michelle, should be so much further up the news agenda and so much further into public conversation because it is utterly dysfunctional. People of Northern Ireland don't have a functioning democratic um, parliament at the moment, and yet we mostly ignore it, uh, which is you, terrible. It's, are you it's in criminal. Northern Ireland uh, at the moment? Do you feel ignored? As uh, Mary Ann got a point with that one, tell me. Get in touch, GBviews at gbnews.uk. I'm also on the hunt for an SNP lover. If you are out there, if you exist, 
can you get in touch with me? Because um, I'm getting a lot of people, uh, to put it mildly, they're not fans of the SNP. <laughs> if you are a fan, you're watching, get in touch, GBviews at gbnews.uk. I'm fascinated to hear why. Hello there, I'm Michelle Dubry. <laughs> this is Jubes and Kerr. I'm still trying to shut these two up. They're still Sorry. arguing um, about whether or not uh, we should have devolution or not. Who are the two that I'm talking about in case you've tuned in and wondered what on earth's going on? Uh, we've got the former Brexit Party MEP and CEO of First Property Group, Ben Habib, and the anthropologist, Marianne O'Hotter. I've got to say, I don't think you guys are going to uh, agree on this one. I'm no, right. I'm, I'm firmly of the belief that Scotland is a country. <laughs> oh. Well, they go. Lots of support, crazy. by the Call way. Crazy. Call me crazy. <laughs> lots, I have to say, you're saying about Scotland being a country, lots of people have written in today saying, I'm not in Scotland, I'm in England, uh, but I would quite like a vote as to whether or not Scotland should be independent so that I can vote. Yes, there should be. Oh. Harsh. And that's part of the problem. You know, you start irritating people across the spectrum who want to get, who start seeing Scotland as synonymous with Nicola Sturgeon, and they're not. Nicola Sturgeon is a chippy vindictive individual who wants to use her soapbox for division and the breakup of the United Kingdom. And that's bound to engender that sort of reaction in England. But, but when particularly to... when under the Barnett formula, you talk about fairness, actually under the Barnett formula, Scotland gets much more state support than England does. Well, what can I say? I don't think these guys are going to agree, so we'll have to agree to disagree. You can tell me your thoughts. Uh, but for now, I'm going to move on. I want to talk to you about the world of work because today uh, figures out show that the real value of UK wages have fallen by 3%. That's apparently the steepest decline on record. Um, now, this has kind of got me pondering, so it has, because, you know, we're in an awful, tricky situation at the moment. Times are about to get a lot harder for a lot more people. Uh, also, we're seeing things like childcare providers, lots of nurseries have been closing down recently. And it's got me kind of thinking, so it has, Ben Habib. Um, if someone's on a kind of lower to mid uh, salary, I wonder if there's people now pondering is it worth me going to work? We're seeing lots of incentives now for people that are, uh, you know, very much on the lower end and on benefits. The social tariff I was looking at earlier on for broadband, mobile phones, etc. Are we de-incentivising people to go out and work? C completely, completely de-incentivising. If you look at the average wage in the United Kingdom, which is about £26,000 a year, about £500-odd uh, pounds a week, um, it's only marginally ahead of what you can get on universal credit, which is a, you know, in the high 200s. And of course, you pay tax on your 500 and whatever you get per week. And there are lots of people who aren't, aren't earning the average. They are earning, by definition, below the average because the average is struck when you take the entire working populace into account. And we're seeing this in the figures. So even though the prime minister, and rightly was pulled up by Keir Starmer on this, has repeatedly said in the Commons that we have one of the lowest unemployment rates uh, you know, uh, uh, in a decade coming out of the pandemic. That may be the case, but that's only because the unemployment figures measure only those people who are looking for a job. We actually have a record 5.6 million people. Just ponder and think about that at the moment. 5.6 million people claiming universal credit. That is over 20% of the UK... That is about 20% of the UK workforce claiming benefits. That is terrible. But a lot of those people will work and having their income topped up by benefits. There'll yeah. be, a lot of people will say about in-work poverty and stuff like that. So, you know, not everyone on no. uh, universal credit, for example, But what work. sort of system 
enables 5.6 million people or encourages 5.6 million people to effectively rely on the state for their livelihood. A there's system something, that has rewarded people to pay their workers there is wages that are not livable. There is something, there is something, I completely agree with you, there's something that's gone fundamentally wrong in the way that our economy is working. And we talked about a 3% reduction in real wages this year. Actually, over the last 12 years of Conservative government, which champions, obviously, a capitalist system, under, under the Conservative government, wages have gone up 5% in nominal terms since 2010, and inflation has been 35%. Real wages have actually shrunk by 25% under this conservative capitalist system. And it's because we don't have a truly conservative government. It's because we don't have a capitalism that now works. What we have is a larger and ever more invasive nanny state. I call it a wet nurse now. I think nanny state we've left in the rearview mirror ages ago. And people are discouraged from working. Why would you go to work if you can receive very close to what you get in work by staying at home? Marianne? I just think that so misrepresents these this mythical 5.6 million people who are sitting at home watching I daytime say, I TV. I didn't say that all 5.6... I didn't say that. No, no, no. Marianne, don't put words in my mouth. What I said okay, was 5.6 million people are claiming benefits. That is a record number. And when you look at the taxed average wage, it's very close to the um, uh, average amount being claimed on universal credit. So... To make sense of that figure, 5.6 million people, we need to unpack who those 5.6 million people are. Michelle points out very rightly that lots of those people will be receiving top-up benefits because the work that they're doing isn't affording them the, the basic minimum standards no. of being able to feed and clothe themselves and pay for the lights to stay on. That is unacceptable. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. The, the unemployment figures are sometimes a, a bit of a... <coughs> Fail to point to fail to indicate all the people who are officially in work but are perhaps in very uh, precarious situations. They're being paid less than than a livable wage, or they're on zero hours contracts where they don't actually they're officially in work, but they don't really know how much they're going to earn from pay packet to pay packet. And there's loads and loads of people. Ben, you're absolutely right that in in real terms, people are massively suffering. Yes, there's a, a real real terms wage increase, but it's just it can't keep up. It ha so far hasn't, and in the next six to twelve months, will not be able and to keep up with the the rise of inflation, which is the cost of living. And that is the fundamental failing of twelve years of conservative government. An inability. I will absolutely agree with you on that. An inability to grow the economy. It's all been about an increasing ever larger state. It's been about high taxation. <coughs> Sunak is completely wrong. He's completely and utterly wrong when he says that it would be the wrong time to cut taxes. What's the best way to help working and middle class people afford, way, afford the cost of living? It's to cut national uh, insurance, hang on, hang on. not increase it on them. Cut VAT so that the goods that they're buying aren't that expensive. Cut tax on fuel so they can actually afford to fill up their cars. And lots of people, yes, do have to drive. Cut tax on domestic fuel, which actually the Conservative government promised they would abolish once we left the EU. Ditch the green taxes, which are the, add another 8% to your domestic fuel. No, it there doesn't is so add 8%. Much, That's not there true. is so These much that could be wrong. done to make the United Kingdom a, a more 
cost-effective place to live. We are an incredibly highly regulated, expensive economy, and that has to change. It's funny because I agree with your conclusion, which is 12 years of Conservative government have not done anyone any favours. But I disagree with the rest of what you've said, because I think that a highly regulated environment means that we have good quality food, for example. It means that we have environmental protections where you're not going to suddenly live next door to a chemical toxic dump that gives your kids cancer, which you see in other countries. It's not countries. a binary it choice, means Marianne, that we're not between be having high standards and living in the toxic wasteland. Well, there it, is, I mean, we there's are... a certain point at which if you strip out all the regulation and you I have... I didn't say strip out all the have, regulation. And you have a, a <laughs> lots of deregulation, yeah. you end up with a situation where water companies, for example, I mean, they're constantly in the news at the moment, perhaps a little unfairly, are, go, are going, well, you know, they're regulated in ways that determine how many leaks they're allowed to have, how many to, um, well, raw sewage managed, discharges they they're allowed to have. Before they, no, but before of... they get regulated, before they get penalised, you strip that away, then the only people they're answering to are their shareholders. Marianne, that doesn't serve Marianne, well, there, does there it? There is a massive difference between needing to deregulate and lower taxes on individuals' cost of living and ditching regulation altogether. Obviously, ditching regulation altogether is absurd, but every regulation a government makes has a monetary impact on the economy. Mm -hmm. So when you live in a highly regulated economy, which is where we are, you ha have put a massive burden both on businesses and on individuals. That's what, that's what the effect of... So green taxes, you may believe that the, the, cli the, the climate crisis is one that requires green taxes, but those green taxes burden the individual. They just do. It's a matter of fact. 8% on the average domestic fuel bill at the moment. VAT on fuel, it burdens the individual. If you cut these costs, people will be able to afford to live more easily. So it is a matter of having to deregulate and cut costs. The alternative is to put up wages to try and meet the inflation that we're facing and entrench inflation into the system. Public sector wages will go through the roof. Government debt will go through the roof and you end up precisely where you started in, in a deeper economic problem. What we have to do is deregulate and cut taxes. I, I just think, I think that puts too much um, of uh, reliance and a sense of responsibility on private investors and companies and then... And individuals. And, and, individuals. and individuals. But, but do you but not trust in those the... private companies to do the right thing? But what is the right thing? The right thing is, is to, uh, to raise profit for shareholders, not to help the person who can't afford their groceries in Asda. Well, you speak about this. Or, or get a doctor or find decent childcare and a nursery that they can afford that where they know their child is going to be safe, going to be nurtured so they can go to work. I think it's really easy, isn't it, to become kind of polarised to the point of sort of a, a kind of a, a madcap a, a extreme where I, I sound like I'm, I'm representing a position where... I would have everybody be given their £10 to spend by nanny state in the week and then you can't spend more than that and you can choose either a blue coat or a brown coat because actually I'm a, a kind of raving communist. I'm not. And I, I think equally, Ben, I think it's probably, you know, you're a very intelligent man. You're not necessarily advocating for something that is a kind of utter Wild West free-for-all. No, I think the balance is wrong. The balance, I think, is wrong as well, but I would nudge the other way. I think you're saying that, you know, you could have rampant sky-high inflation, but I think 
this is the challenge, isn't it? We've got the Bank of England, we've got our, our, our Chancellor, who are trying to work out what is the best way to, to kind of correct and steer the ship through, through well, very turbulent through waters. Whatever, the, what, we can policies, disagree on what they should the do, policies, but I don't think they should just sort of the policies, slam a handbrake turn on. The policies that they've adopted so far have resulted in record level of national debt, record level of inflation, highest inflation in 40 years, record level of tax take from, from the population. So we're now at a 70-year high in the tax take that the government has. And GDP growth over the 12 years has been around 10% in sterling terms. If you put it in dollar terms, the United Kingdom hasn't grown in 12 years. Now, you can't have the population <coughs> going up from what was it, 63 million in 2010 to 68 million, have no growth in the economy, have massive inflation, have massive increment in government debt, and expect people's livelihoods to improve. So whatever they're doing, they're getting it fundamentally wrong. Yeah, I, and, I, I agree and they that need growth, a change is, of growth has to be the driver for growth getting us out of this driver. mess. I totally agree with you. Well, it's just you how you go about doing that. We got there in the end. You agreed. <laughs> growth has to be the driver. Lots and lots of you guys emailing in on that particular topic. And I'll read some of those out in just a second once I come back from a break. But guess what? I did it. I found you. I was asking, is there anyone out there that likes <laughs> and supports the SNP? I found you. Quite a few of you, actually. Uh, Nick says, well, Michelle, we've got free education, free prescriptions, free period products, all bought in by the SNP. Not all bad at all. Ian says, I love the SNP. You don't read out uh, messages from the SNP at EN, that's English News, because that's what you all are. Why don't you English go and set up an English independence party and break away from the so-called union yourself? I'm pretty sure, he says, this message won't be read out. Surprise, surprise. Come on, the SNP. Roll on, Indy Ref 2. There you go. I read it out and I found some SMP lovers. High five to me. <laughs> Coming up on Dan Wooten tonight, should victims of the extreme trans lobby be exonerated by the wider media following the Tavistock expose? One of Britain's top comedy minds, Father Ted creator Graham Linehan, says he never should have been cancelled for criticising the gender clinic. He'll join me live. Plus, as lockdown leaves 10,000 people waiting three months for treatment, cancer battler Linda Nolan teams up with former head of the World Health Organization cancer program, Carol Sakura to break down the shocking stats. Plus, there's opinion galore from top US journalist Megyn Kelly and my superstar panel, media personality Christine Hamilton, conservative commentator Reverend Calvin Robinson and author and journalist Rebecca Reed. That's Dan Wooten tonight, Monday to Thursday from 9pm till 11pm on GB News. One can. No. Hello there. Welcome back to Jubes & Co. with me, Michelle Jubry, keeping me company and, quite frankly, not really agreeing on very much at all. <laughs> it's my panel tonight. Uh, we've got the former Brexit Party MEP and the CEO of First Property Group, Ben Habib, and the anthropologist, Mary Ann O'Hotta. Uh, we've just been talking about uh, whether or not you're incentivised to work. I've got to say, uh, split down the middle at the moment, uh, lots of you saying, absolutely, kind of going out working, uh, it's something that's it's just in you, isn't it? It's an attitude, I guess. Uh, some other people saying that they feel that there's lots of people that are basically uh, work shy. 
And lots of you as well have been in touch for, that you're on Universal Credit and giving me your reasons why. Uh, just had someone that's saying that you're building a business at the moment. That's why you're claiming Universal Credit, because you're not bringing in any money, someone else, uh, saying that you're claiming a variety of uh, benefits because of ill health uh, and that you can't work. Nick has said, Michelle, I've been self-employed for over 35 years. I'm now at the end of my tether I'm trying to work out if I can finally start work at the age of 58 because, quite frankly, I'll be better off not having to go and pay for a vehicle uh, to go out and work, get the accountant, get the fuel costs and all the costs, etc., to run a business. So I think that's Nick there saying, uh, in summary, that it's not worth his while going out uh, and working. I think that's a real shame, you know, because I am a big believer in the welfare state for those people that absolutely need it. But I do worry with things like furlough and all of the government handouts and all the rest of it that perhaps some people have got a taste for a life now that actually there is this opportunity not to have to go to work and to just be in receipt of government assistance. And I'm not sure how healthy that is uh, for a country, for an economy, especially one uh, that we've just been discussing needs to be boosting. Well it's productivity levels. Mary, I'm desperate to disagree with me, but I'm going to move on. Okay. <laughs> look, at, look at the time, ladies and gentlemen. It's almost quarter to seven. It flies, doesn't it, when you're having fun? And I just want to do one more story before I leave you because uh, we talk about this one often, don't we? The channel crossings. Um, quite frankly, no one seems to be able to get a grip of it. We talk tough all the time. This policy, that policy and all the other... Uh, you might have noticed that the Royal Navy, they've been leading the charge when it comes to uh, patrolling the channel. Got to be honest, though, they've become almost like a glorified taxi service, haven't they? I'm not sure how effective they've been, especially not as a deterrent, which is one of the reasons that they were in, in place in the first instance. Anyway, long story short, potentially come January, the Royal Navy might not be continuing their duties. Uh, would that be a bad thing, Ben Habib? Well, I don't think it's going to make a blind bit of difference, given the ineptitude with which they've been patrolling the North Sea so far. I mean, the, the, the way I put it to people when they talk, you know, ask me about um, illegal migration across the Channel is, you know, what would Border Force's reaction be if 400 people got off a jumbo jet at Heathrow Airport and charged the immigration desks and insisted on being let in? It would be the quickest way to... <laughs> pointed in their face, find themselves face down on the, on, the, on the ground and handcuffed, manhandled back into a room, put on the next plane back to wherever it is they came from. And that is a physical border control. That's what would happen in Heathrow, but you're looking at me askance. But that is, you try it next time you're coming through Heathrow, run at the immigration desk and see if you don't get a gun pointing in your face. Oh when these people come across into our territorial water from, front, from French territorial waters, effectively they are assaulting the United Kingdom's <laughs> integrity. That's what they're doing. And the Navy and border force should be physically repelling these people. Rwanda is not a solution. Rwanda is an acknowledgement that border control isn't working. Rwanda is a deportation program to deal with the people who've already come across our defective border control and been ferried back to our shores by border force and by the Royal Navy. What we need is either border force to be sacked and a whole new load of people to be employed who will actually do their job, um, or we need to, or the government needs to take on private um, 
private individuals who will actually push these boats back into French territorial water. They're putting themselves in danger coming into the channel. They've, made it, they've got the right to make the decisions they wish to make, but then they must recognize there is a risk that they will be pushed back into French water and we must push them back. That is it. That is border control. Uh, Marianne? You laughed, by the way, at part of that when he was saying basically this is a, an assault in some way on the UK. You thought that? that was yeah, the, the, I mean, I, I think I mean it's 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 very colourful language. I think the only if you want to, I'm trying to work out how to phrase this. If you want to have people spread eagled on the concrete of Heathrow Airport's air runway being handcuffed and marched away to some kind of detention facility because they might be an illegal immigrant, then I would invite you to do that to the women and children who you think may be Ukrainian, but ooh, who knows, maybe they're from somewhere else. Marianne, and they threw their papers because they are also claiming asylum or refuge status here. But that's, hang on, and that's, the hang suggestion on. No, is no, 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 that you can silly. look at the... No, that's it's not silly, silly because Someone you can... Someone being invited to come to the country versus someone making an illegal crossing are two different things. Let's not conflate the two. OK, so firstly, if you're seeking asylum, there's nothing illegal about... Get I mean, it's dangerous. You might have paid people to do illegal things. You might have paid people smugglers to get that place on the really dodgy dinghy to try and get across the channel. I'm not saying that's a good thing. I'm saying that absolutely needs to be addressed because it's a humanitarian crisis as well as a national crisis. We don't want 200,000 people every year trying, risking their lives and risking the, 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 the lives and the resources of our Coast Guard, of the RNLI and of our Navy, who have better things to be doing. And the billions of pounds we have to spend but, on housing them once they get here, but, apparently in pretty classy hotels. No. And, and fighting and fighting all sorts of judicial processes for the multiplicity that of asylum applications they make. That is because you need to determine whether yeah. someone has a, a legal and genuine claim of asylum, in which case we have a duty and a responsibility as citizens Marianne, of the world they want to provide refuge and asylum. They are coming asylum. from France. Doesn't matter. If you click on... A Ukrainian if, refugee has passed through other safe you, countries. A Ukrainian refugee has been invited is, yeah. into the country. What are you it doesn't matter. If they you, can't be invited if you're a refugee you have a right to claim asylum so we treat everybody equally the correct whether they're way from to Ukraine do it is to or make Afghanistan the asylum application the correct way to do it is to make the application in France and once asylum has been granted to safely travel from France to the United Kingdom the wrong way to do it is to do it illegally in a craft, breaching international law, no, breaching our national territory. You're not breaching territorial. international law if you're you claiming asylum. If you're, you're an asylum seeker, you, you cannot breach international you are. law. Can I ask you a real uh, but wait, 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 hang on. Can I make one point? Which oh. is that once again, I find myself sitting at this desk next to you, Michelle, having an argument about whether the people in the boats are doing the right thing or the wrong thing, and we're focusing the, the arguments around what those individuals' decisions have made. What decisions those individuals have made. I, I'm, that's not what my argument. What we need argument. to do is that's dial my back argument, and say this is the fault and the failing of the Home Office and the government. They've had 12 years in government. They said they were going to take control of our borders. Now, however they were going to do that, whether we agree or not with the, the kind of the moral, ethical, humanitarian or, or the kind of practical um, details, they have failed. However you measure that, Priti Patel is an appalling failure and is still in post. 
the, the whole Rwanda plan has cost the taxpayer millions of pounds. Yeah, or it will do by the million end of it. up front to Rwanda. There we go. Including yeah. 20... Exactly. Yeah. The, the, the fact that the asylum seekers are suffering real harms because they're put up in um, old army barracks that aren't fit for habitation, like Napier in Kent. A high court judged them unfit for habitation by asylum yeah. seekers last year, and there's still people but, but there. It's, there's it's, people in hotels that Marianne, is A, costly and terrible for them. There's yeah. no reason that an asylum claim should take months to be processed. Whether or not someone does or doesn't have papers, that, once again, is a failing of the Home Office. So it all should come back to the Home Office, not to the refugees or not the, the, the people claiming asylum from the boats. It's not about them. This needs to be about government, but policy and the border Well, force. I mean, it's just very simple. Border control is exactly what it says on the tin, border control. It's a physical process. You've got to protect your borders. You can't have people willy-nilly crossing into your territorial waters without showing their papers at the point at which they wish to cross, which is not a practical proposition in French territorial waters as they come into UK ones, so they need to be pushed back. No. And if they want to come, there, there, are, there are immigration, British immigration officers in Calais who can take their asylum papers and process the applications and all that. And I just want to say one more thing. Oh, yeah, because I've only got 30 seconds. 40%, 40% of illegal migration across the North Sea from June to the middle of July was from Albanians yes. who are perfectly safe. So? Yes. But what about what the mean, 60%? Sir? How can you say So some sir? people scam the system. So that doesn't you, mean but that, you seem that to doesn't mean the other our borders people... is a fine thing. No, I'm, I'm not. I'm saying that we need to have a system which is humanitarian and fair. Push them back Humane. to France. They'll stop No, because coming. then you will see RNLI crews watching people drown. Why? In the They'll sea. be in French right. territorial water. Some back on make French them shores. not dead. Right. <laughs> I tell you what. This is going to rumble on. If I know my viewers, and I think I do, I imagine that some of you, I'll have steam coming out your ears <laughs> right now. Oh, uh, so that is both. all we've got time for. Thank you to my panel. Thank you to you Thank at you. home. Thanks for listening to Jubes and Co, the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you will never miss an episode. And if you've enjoyed it, leave us a nice comment. I'll see you next time.